Last Sunday, we wrapped up this series. We've been in for a couple of months on this section of, of Romans, this really complicated, nuanced section of one of the most complicated and nuanced sections of the Bible. And I, I had to have a flip chart with me to even go through it. And actually, I got so used to the flip chart that I feel a little odd. I almost brought it out here just blank, and I just wouldn't even address it just because I got comfortable with the flip chart. It'll be back one day. Um, we're gonna take a little bit of a break from Romans. We'll jump back into it really soon. And today, uh, it's, just, it's just its own thing. We're just gonna look at a story. And this story uh, is about a group of people who followed God. They experienced God. They saw God do things that were undeniable, things that, that took them from a place of wondering whether or not God was real to knowing without a doubt that God is real. They were, they were passionate followers of God. But one day, this really random thing happens. They, uh, they got a little nervous and so, you know, they did what you all do when you get nervous. They took all their, their gold and all their earrings and all their jewelry and they melted it down and they made it into a golden cow. And then they, they put that cow in front of them and they, they worshiped it. You know, just like a typical, you remember that time that you and your friends made a, a golden cow and then worshiped it because it was God? You're like, oh yeah, it was a weird day, right? It's a really weird story, but that, that is the story that we're gonna look at. This group of people who know God, who have followed God, who have seen God move on this random day do something totally unimaginable, unthinkable, and honestly, just as random and out of left field to us as we might imagine. And they make this, this false image of a God and say, let's bow down and worship that. It's a story that you may have heard and you probably haven't thought about in a long time. I, I read a book that went into great detail about this story several months ago, and it just got my gears turning, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, so with that said, we're gonna jump into the story. But first, I'd like to pray. And I know we've prayed a bunch. We pray a lot at his hands. We like to talk to the God who likes to talk to us. And so if you don't mind, I just wanna pray and then we'll jump in. God, I ask that you speak to us through this story. I ask that you show us something about ourselves, about you, about our world. Help us understand who we are, what we're meant for, and what you would have us do a little bit more clearly. And I pray this in your name, amen. Well, in order to understand this story, you kind of have to know some backstory. And I'm not gonna take a long time on this. You know, it's like backstory is really important. I grew up as a kid with an older brother who was super into Star Wars, like super into it. And they came out when he was pretty much born. I was born the year the last Star Wars movie came out. And so I grew up watching uh, on VHS. I heard someone amen when they saw VHS tapes on the video. That was my childhood as well. And you know, if you've ever watched a Star Wars movie, many other movies do this thing. There's backstory, right? There's words that scroll, that tell you the context of what's about to happen. I was too young to read, though. Never got that context. Uh, didn't really need it, though, because, I mean, let's be honest, Star Wars is, you know, laser beams, spaceships, it's magic, space magicians, wizards, whatever. Um, it's fine. Uh, but backstory is important. So the backstory of this one is, is really simple. There's a group of people, and they're called the, the Israelites, and they began as a group of people when this man named Abraham was called by God to leave his home, to leave everything that he had ever known, and to trust a promise that God made him. God said, if you will follow me, I will give you a child, I'll give you a son. He didn't have any children. And I'll give you a land for your descendants. He said, because your descendants are going to multiply so greatly, you wouldn't even be able to keep track of them, and they're going to become a nation. So Abraham trusts God, and he, and he goes. And and he gets the first part of the promise fulfilled. The second part, the land, he gets to see it, but he doesn't get to inhabit it. Not yet. That's a promise that's gonna take a while to come to fruition. But that first part of the promise happens in his lifetime. He has a child. He names his child Isaac. And then Isaac has, has a couple of kids as well. And Isaac has a, a boy named Esau and a boy named Jacob. 
And Jacob has this encounter with God one day that changes him forever, so much so that God gives him a new name, and that name is Israel. And the word Israel means to wrestle with God. And so the good news for you, if you're someone who wrestles with God, you struggle sometimes, you question, that's okay. That's, that's actually the entire namesake of the people who followed God in, in the Old Testament, the people that God used to bring his son into this world through. Now, Israel, he's a very productive man. He has 12 sons. And uh, those 12 sons become the tribes of what ends up becoming a nation, a mighty, mighty people called the, the nation of Israel. But if you know their story, it's not a smooth one. It's got a lot of highs and some of the highs are really high, but the lows are really low. And, and pretty early in their story, they settle in the land of Egypt. They're still waiting for that promised land. And the Egyptians get a little nervous because they're growing in number. And the Egyptians say, hey, if we don't do something about these people, they might rise up against us. And so the Egyptians subdue them, make them into a slave people. And for generations, multiple generations, they live as slaves in Egypt. Until so one day, God uses this man named Moses, who is an Israelite, but he was raised by Egyptians. He uses Moses to, to lead the people out of captivity, to lead them out of Egypt. God does these amazing miracles, things that, that movies have been made into and movies that require special effects galore, like CG type stuff. God does amazing things to get them out of Egypt, to make them free. But like we've talked about in the series we just wrapped up, it's one thing to be, to be handed freedom. It's another thing to know what to do with it when you have it. So that's where the nation of Israel is when we get to this story today. They've been set free. They're no longer slaves in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They're at its doorstep practically, but before they can take it, before they can have any hope of being the nation that they're meant to be, they have to learn what to do with freedom. And the way that God goes about this is he takes Moses, their leader, and, and he, he brings Moses to a mountain. And he calls Moses to come up the mountain and he's gonna meet with Moses there and he's gonna speak to Moses and he's gonna give Moses the law. He's gonna help Moses understand how to, how to structure their society because they have no idea. And that's where we are when we get to Exodus chapter 24. Verse 15, it says, then Moses climbed up the mountain and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord God called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. And then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what's interesting is if you really read the story in depth, you find that God at one point actually kind of invites everybody to come up the mountain. But they see this big cloud and the fire and it's thundering and they're like, nah, we're good. We'll stay down here. Hey, Moses, why don't you go, why don't you go up the mountain? You know, go ahead and you do that thing. And so Moses does. And while Moses is up there, you know what they're thinking, right? Like he's clearly dead. You know, they watch this guy, their leader, just walk up a mountain into a giant cloud that has a summit of fire and like, well, he's not coming back. And they had hope, I'm sure, but after a while, I mean, how long do you, how long do you wait? How long do you hold out hope? At some point, you get a little nervous, you get a little antsy. And so that's what happens when we get to Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. And in this story, he's the substitute teacher. Quick show of hands, who has ever been a substitute teacher in school? Raise your hand if you have. Can we just please clap for these people? Because, uh, I mean, come on. I can think of the things 
that me and my classmates did to our substitute teachers. And uh, I mean, one of my high school teachers is sitting in the room right now. She wasn't even a substitute and she got it bad. So just imagine the substitute teachers. If, if one of my previous substitutes came in here and saw me on the stage, they would just go, nope, different church. And they would walk away in a moment and rightfully so. Uh, Aaron's the substitute, doesn't go well for substitutes. So they go to Aaron, come on, they said. Why don't you do this? Why don't you make us some gods who can lead us? We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. It doesn't take Aaron long to to cave. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then Aaron took the gold and he melted it down and he molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. And the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. In other words, some really bad and really crazy stuff is happening. And if you're reading this story, you're like, man, that escalated quickly. They go from, hey, Moses is on the mountain. I, I got an idea. Why don't we make some gods? And it's, it's crazy, right? It's so random. It's so out of, out of left field. There's a few really interesting things going on here. Number one, while this is happening, Moses is up on the mountain with God and God is giving Moses the law and the, the foundation of, of their law, the law that we're no longer under because thank goodness Jesus, well, not thank goodness, let's thank God. Uh, that's appropriate in church. Thank God Jesus came and he satisfied the law, paid the price for our sins. Now we're free. We live under the, the covenant, the, the, the law of God's love. But they, they were getting the, the first law And that law was like, here's the rules. This is what you gotta do. Now come to find out later in the story, the point of that law was actually just to show us our inability to live it so that we would recognize our need for a savior because until we actually admit that we can't do it on our own, we never ask for help. And God knew that. But Moses is up on the mountain and he's getting the law and the foundation of that law is the 10 commandments. Now some of you grew up in church and you had this like ingrained into you and and you know them. And if you didn't grow up in church, you probably still know some of them. I mean, it's like, number one, don't worship another God. Number two, don't create what I learned, the language was a graven image. In other words, don't do exactly what the people of Israel are doing right now. Don't make a God out of wood or something else and be like, that's my God. Don't do that. People did that all the time back then. And then it says things like, you know, keep the Lord's name, like don't say it in vain, don't, don't dishonor God by the way you, you talk about God, uh, honor your mother and father, keep the Sabbath day, and then you get to the really practical ones like uh, don't kill each other, that's a really helpful one, don't lie to each other, don't steal from each other, don't commit adultery, don't covet, you know, you have all these laws. And it's funny because if you read that list, you, you would almost think the first two, don't worship another God and don't create like a God out of something else, you would almost think that for the people of Israel, those are throwaways. Like, why are those even in there? Clearly, that's the last thing they would ever do because they've just seen what God can do. They've been freed from Egypt. They've seen miracles. They've seen unbelievable things. The last thing these people would ever do, if you're thinking logically, is go, you know what? Let's, let's worship another God. I got an idea. Let's just make a little statue and worship that. That's, that that'll be fun. You almost think like God should come to them and say, hey, here's the law, Um, don't kill each other. I wanna stress that one. Don't lie, don't steal, don't do those. And by the way, I probably don't even need to say this. This goes without saying, but just in case you're ever, I don't know, tempted to worship another God or carve like a little statue or or whatever, don't, don't do that. But you guys, I don't even need to say that. And yet 
Those are the very first two commandments listed. And interestingly, they're the first two broken. It's almost like God knew something that that they didn't know. But even if God sees this coming, I mean, it makes sense. He's God. We never would. If you're reading this story with fresh eyes, you get to the part where Moses goes up the mountain and then it cuts back to the, the nation of Israel and you would never think, I know what's about to happen. I got it, I figured it out. Some of you guys are really good at figuring out the twist endings in movies. You know, you watch the movie, you figure it out, you ruin it for the people sitting around you. You know who you are. Um, you, never, you would never guess this twist. You would never be like, they're about to make a God, a little, a little God, a little G God. This little like cow thing made of gold out of their, they watched it be made out of their own earrings. And now they're like, let's bow down and worship it. That's crazy. It's so random. Like it defies logic. And, and you read a story like this and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with anything in my life, with me, with our culture, with our world? But what you have to understand is that what the Israelites do in this story is something that every generation, every generation of people who follow God find themselves tempted to do. You just have to understand their world a little bit for it to make sense. So, so think for a minute about where they've come from. They've come from Egypt and they've been there for generations. So every person grew up in a culture that worshiped statues. And, and not only statues, like big, impressive statues. In fact, many of the Israelites probably took a part in building and creating and shaping the very statues that the Egyptians worshiped. You know, the Egyptians had, had gods, false gods, like Anubis. And Anubis is a man that has the head of a jackal in the Egyptian culture. You've probably seen hieroglyphics or a movie or something that has that in it. They had the sun god, Ra, and Ra had the, the head of a falcon. And so they have these, these animalistic statues that, that have been built and they're huge and they're made of gold and they're gigantic. And, and this is what the Egyptians worship and the Egyptians are impressive people. They're the most dominant, powerful nation state in the world at that time. And think about what it must have been like to be the Israelites, the people with no power, and you're watching your Egyptian masters worship their grand statues of their, their sun god and their god of the underworld and all these other gods. The more powerful the nation, the more gods they had and the more grand their statues and their temples were. It wasn't just the Egyptians, it was everyone at that time. And then they look at the, the poor little Israelites and say, hey, what does your god look like? And the Israelites are like, ah, we, we don't know. We, none of us have ever seen him. But he's real. I promise, he's real. And it doesn't look like he's real because here we are slaves and nothing good has happened to us in a really long time. But don't you worry, our invisible God that we don't know what he looks like or, or who he is, or we don't even know his name, but, but like he's real and he's really powerful, our invisible, nameless, shapeless God. The Egyptians would have laughed at them because in their culture, the idea of an invisible God, a God you can't see, you don't even know your God's like name you just call him God? Like, that's preposterous. And no doubt the Israelites would have felt awkward to have a God who's so countercultural, who doesn't fit with the culture that they're part of. No doubt many of the Israelites would have been embarrassed even at their invisible God that just is so laughable in the eyes of the culture that they're part of. So what happens when they're free? When first given the chance, they do what they've grown up seeing done. They make a God who looks like the world around them. They make a God that the cultures of the world 
can understand. A God that's not invisible anymore. A God that they don't have to apologize for. Now they don't have to go, oh yeah, we don't know what our God looks like. We've never seen our God. You just have to trust us. He's there. He's real. I know it's silly, but go with me. And they're like, no, that, that's our God right there. That golden cow. You want to worship it? And, and while that's silly to us, in their culture and time, people would have been like, yeah, I'll worship a gold cow. Why not? I've worshiped a jackal man and a, a falcon dude. Like, let's go with the cow guy. Why not? Right? My point is this. It, it seems silly and far-fetched to us, but in their culture, it's exactly what you would expect. They, they create a God they don't have to apologize for. They create a God that they don't have to endure ridicule because of when it comes to the world around them. They create a God that the world around them in their minds will look at and go, yeah, I get that. The problem though is that that God isn't real. The golden calf has done nothing for them. And the golden calf is, is not going to do anything for them. In fact, if you keep reading this story, just know that it's a cautionary tale. It does, not, it does not end well for the Israelites on this day. In fact, it's one of the darkest days in their history because a God that you create, a God that you mold and shape into the image that you think that God should be is not a God who can help you, who can save you. That's not a God who's gonna answer your prayers. That's a God who's gonna get you in a lot of trouble. See, every generation, every generation of, of God followers has this challenge. It's the same challenge the Israelites faced. We serve a God who, is that the house of the rising sun playing? <laughs> wow. You know, you can do the song Amazing Grace to the house of the rising sun perfectly. I heard someone do it one time. It was interesting. Um, kind of goes along with what I'm saying. But, but here's, the, here's the, the thing. Every generation, every generation has faced the same struggle. We worship a God who just does not mesh with culture. He never has. Like there, there has never been a culture in the history of the world that God would show up to in that culture and everyone would be like, yeah, you are amazing. We love everything about you. Don't you change anything. That's never existed before. Even great example would be Jesus. He's always a good example. And he shows up in the culture that was supposed to be the exact culture that worshiped God, the culture that God would approve of, of all the peoples on the earth, that's the culture that's doing things God's way. And Jesus shows up and he is God. He's God in human form and they utterly reject him. They find him offensive to the degree that they kill him. And we, we same thing, we look at them and we're like, man, how could you guys do that? But I promise you, if Jesus had waited until today and he showed up in this culture, same thing would happen. There's never been a time on the earth where Jesus would have shown up and said, hey, I'm here and I, I'm, I'm here to tell you exactly who God is and exactly what God wants to do. And everyone would have been like, we love it. No, everyone's like, you stop talking, shut up, or we're gonna kill you. Because God is countercultural. It doesn't matter the culture. God's always countercultural. So what do you do as a Jesus follower when you worship a God who your culture doesn't understand? You face a temptation. And the temptation is either stand with God as he is proudly or feel that pressure to have to shape God into some version of God that the culture around you will go, oh yeah, I'm fine with that. 
Every generation has faced this problem. We see it happen many times in scripture. You can look at a guy like King David who feels this need to build God an impressive house, a temple. Because all the other religions of the world, their gods have these big temples. It's kind of like the statue thing. And he's not doing it like the Israelites did before where they worshiped it. He's like, God, you should have a nice house. I mean, he literally says, God, I have a nice house. And you're God and I'm just a king. If I have a nice house, you've got to have a nice house because at that time they worshiped God in a tent. And, and, you know, he's thinking, I mean, these other gods in the world, they can't have beautiful temples. And my God live in a tent? What does that, that say? People are going to come by like, oh, where's your worship? Oh, we worship in that, that tent over there. But, oh, our God's powerful. Just you watch. Like, you know, no, it's, it's that, that like incensed David. But God didn't want a temple. Turns out God isn't that impressed with our houses. Like when you're the creator of everything and you made the universe, it's not like you can build a house. And he's like, wow. That is nice. I love how spacious is in here. I mean, like I have all the universe to like stretch my feet in and whatnot, but this is great. This is great. I love it. I love your art. It's awesome. Like God's not impressed by that, but David, he feels this this compulsion. And it's the same basic idea. Like I've got to find a way to, to make my worship and my God fit so that the culture around gets it and goes, yeah, 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 that's, that's what we want. But a golden temple isn't that different than a golden calf. It becomes an idol that people worship. And if you know the story of, of Israel, that temple becomes almost a, a God in and of itself to them, to where they prioritize the temple and the way they worship and all the temple stuff even more than God. And when Jesus shows up and he says, hey, this whole temple thing, one day it's not gonna be here. There won't be one stone left on top of another, but don't worry about it. I can do more than, than this temple has ever done in three days time. And they're like, kill him. Because they love the temple more than they love God. It's, it's true in our culture today. If you go back, it's interesting, go back like 75, 100 years. And we were living in America in what's called a modern culture. I love history. I'm kind of a nerd that way and it's boring. And so just st- please stay with me because this is gonna be a quick aside. I promise we'll get back to something relevant. But, but in a modern society, which we're no longer in, we're in a postmodern society, maybe even a post, postmodern society. In, in the modern culture of 100 years ago, 75 years ago, science was king. And if something couldn't be proven true scientifically, you couldn't replicate it in a lab, it was viewed as silly. And there was this narrative that developed, that's not true, but a narrative developed that, that faith and science are opposed to one another. And many of you have grown up believing that's the case, that for you to have faith in God means you have to reject scientific reasoning. And it's, it's like, that's not true at all. And in fact, it's amazing how often science has ended up proving scripture to be true to a point that's actually a problem for the people who, who believe in science at, at the opposition of God. And so a great example, quick aside, I was actually talking to a, a friend uh, just a few days ago about this, an interesting conversation. Um, raise your hand if you're familiar with the Big Bang Theory. And I'm not talking about the TNT, TBS show that's on like 50 times a day, Sheldon, that stuff. I'm talking about like the scientific theory of the Big Bang. Well, if, if you've you know, grown up in this culture today, which all of us have, you might have believed that the Big Bang Theory was actually kind of like a problem for us Christians. Because like, isn't it in opposition to what we believe? And the answer is like, no, like not really at all. In fact, the Big Bang Theory is really new. It didn't really gain ground until about the 1940s, 1950s. And before that, every scientist, every scientist in the world that was respected, that was revered, that was taken seriously, believed in something called steady state theory. Now raise your hand if you've heard about steady state theory before. Way fewer hands than the Big Bang Theory, because Big Bang Theory has completely and totally eclipsed that. No one today, no one, at least no one of note, believes in steady state theory, but go back 
75 years ago, every single scientist would say, I believe in the steady state theory of the universe clearly. And steady state theory said that the universe never had a beginning. It always existed. It's always been here. Kind of like we think of God. They thought the universe has just always been here. So you look at Genesis 1.1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they all looked at that and said, that's preposterous. There never was a beginning. You silly Christians. We know that everything has always been here and you believe that there was a beginning and God did it. You guys are cute. And Jesus' followers would have felt the same weird feeling that the Israelites felt. They believe in a God who does not mesh with the way the views of the world are around them. Well, then the Big Bang Theory catches hold. And what happens is scientists discover that it seems like everything in the universe is moving and moving like an explosion from a central point of origin. So if you follow logic, if everything's moving from a central point of origin, you rewind the clock and you get an origin. Or in other words, a beginning. And it was fought against so dramatically by the scientific community because it totally and completely upended what they had stood for and and championed for so long. And there are actually articles of really well-known scientists at that time saying, guys, if if we go in with Big Bang Theory, we're basically saying the same thing that that the Christians have been saying. But the evidence was was insurmountable. There's even conversations with Albert Einstein who believed in steady state theory, who who changed, converted. And he said, I now see the necessity for a beginning. And so the scientific community, which for years had said, in the beginning, you guys are nuts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There never was a beginning. They revised their thing to now, in the beginning, something created the universe. And Christians were like, yeah, we've been saying that for a long time. Like, welcome to the party. The idea, the narrative that that science and faith don't mesh, it's just not true. But that narrative still exists. And so so go back to what we're talking about, this idea of, of creating our own golden calves. In the modern era, what you found was a lot of Jesus followers feeling embarrassment for the fact that the God of of the Bible does miracles. So you look at something like John chapter two, verse 23. It says, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. And if you know the stories of Jesus, you know the miraculous signs, right? He's healing people of blindness, of leprosy by touching them or just praying for them. Sometimes he just looks at them and he says, your faith has made you well. And they stand up and they walk. That's, that's, come on. How do you replicate that in a lab? What experiment can you do to produce that result? You can't. Jesus walked on water. He rose from the, he rose from the dead. At the end, after he rises from the dead, yeah, okay, awkward clap happened. Everyone, you gotta go with it. You gotta go with it. That's the rules. Just, no, it's good. It's good. You know, at the end of Jesus's story, at least as far as like him being on the earth that we see is he ascends to heaven. He flies. And they've been looking at Jesus' followers like, you think he, the, he flew? That's, that's what you believe? He, he flew. Yeah. And so there was this, this same feeling, this awkwardness, this need to almost apologize for God. And so what you actually saw happen in that generation where many Jesus followers tried to, to sort of skirt around the miraculous and, and ignore the miraculous explain it away. In fact, I went to college and I had many professors who came from the modern viewpoint and they would, they would always talk about how you don't really have to believe in miracles. You don't have to believe in the miraculous. It's not necessarily a, a prerequisite for believing in God. And, and I had a professor one time, I asked, I said, well, what about the whole Jesus walking on water thing? And he went, ah, like he was about to say something really smart, but what he said was actually really dumb. Uh, he went, ah, the water is chaos. 
It's the story of Jesus rising above the chaos and pulling us out of it. And I was like, mm, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a story about him walking on water. <laughs> like, it's super clear because Jesus does speak in metaphors very often, but it's not hard to tell when he's speaking in metaphors. It's like, but that was the push. And so you had tons and tons of Christians feeling this, this weird weight for the Bible, having miraculous stories. And you saw this push for people to sort of subdue that and push it to the side. And all that was, was another golden calf. Like, let's, let's make a God who, it's like, he's, he's not a supernatural God who does supernatural things. He's just a natural God who does natural things. And that took hold, but guess what? That's just a golden calf. It's not the real God. Well, look at us today. We're not in a modern society right now. Our society, science is cool and facts are great, but not if they conflict with feelings. That is the society we live in because we live in a postmodern society and I'm not knocking it. I'm just, we need to know where we live. Like a postmodern society values personal expression and personal feelings of comfort above anything else, which is why in our society today, actual scientific studies are often suppressed or ignored if they have the potential to offend people's feelings. You see this happen often where scientific things will come out and I don't know if you're clapping for that or against that, but either way, we're doing, this is the awkward clap Sunday. I love it. Um, but you have like actual science come out and then they're like, ooh, we don't like, we don't like the results of that actual science. So, because feelings. And so here's, here's what you have to understand. In the, in the culture that we live in, a God who's invisible, no problem. Our culture has no problem with that. It's not like the Egyptians. A God who does cool, miraculous stuff, not an issue whatsoever. Our culture is fine with that. But what about a God who tells you what to do? What about a God who has the audacity to tell you what Jesus says to all of us in Matthew chapter 16? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. Well, that's just not gonna fly. A God who has the audacity to tell us that certain things are good and right, but other things are not. That God doesn't work in a postmodern society because that God doesn't always make me feel good. I mean, like guys, God doesn't always, I'm just saying this as a pastor, God does not always make me feel good. There are times when God speaks to me and I can point to moments in my life where he spoke to me in such a way that I've never felt more like, celebrated and loved and just valued and it was, it was awesome. And there've been other times where God spoke to me and it wasn't like he made me feel terrible or horrible. He's not a jerk. But there've been times where God spoke to me and I'm like, loud and clear, sir, you know? And see, what's funny is, is like, we'll read Jesus's teachings and things that will bother us that Jesus said did not bother the people that he was talking to at all. Like, like we'll read Jesus teach about judgment. He talks about it. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Like the world will be judged and all things are gonna come to an end and, and God's gonna make sure that everything's put right. And our culture that's postmodern is like, I don't like that at all because that might mean that somebody's wrong and somebody's right and God's gonna reconcile that. And I don't like the idea of a God who, who judges and all that. But the people in Jesus' day, they had no problem with that. They're like, that's, yeah, I hope that happens because they thought they were gonna be on the right side of that judgment. But when Jesus talks about a God that, that loves you so much that he wants to put his spirit inside of you and a, a God that you can call father, a God that you can relate to, a God that overlooks your sin, a God that gives you grace and mercy even when you don't deserve it. That's what offended the people in Jesus's day. They're like, no, we like the harsh judgmental God. See, what I'm saying is it just depends on the generation that you're in, where you feel it, but the temptation is always there to say, 
this God that I believe in, he doesn't mesh with the culture that I'm a part of. So when that happens, what do I do? And so what you see happening right now in our culture is it's just another golden calf. It's let's, let's make a God. And this God is like on Prozac. He's just always cool with everything. You know, this, this God, he's never gonna say, hey, that's not good. This isn't, this isn't good. This isn't right. This is not what you should do. Like that God does not fly in a self-expressionistic postmodern society. And so it's the golden calf thing. Am I gonna, am I gonna follow God irregardless? Or am I going to, to make a God that I'm more comfortable with? Am I gonna fashion my God and give God this little PR spin and be like, hey God, let me just kind of give you a little makeover. This is the new and improved God. And this God, he, he never says anything that you have to wrestle with or grapple with. In fact, this God is, our culture is gonna be like, yeah, it, just, it never works because that isn't God. Now I wanna talk about this as we, we wrap up on kind of a macro level, but then a personal level, because this, this is a deeply personal thing. This is not, this is not a rant about culture because it doesn't matter the culture. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it doesn't matter if we're talking about, you know, ancient Mesopotamia in Egyptian times, or if we're talking about the Jewish culture that Jesus was part of, or if we're talking about America circa 1940 or America circa 2020. It doesn't matter what culture we're talking about. What I'm trying to say is that God is always countercultural. And as Jesus followers, we have to understand that. We have to understand that we'll always have this temptation to try to kind of shift and, and blend God with our cultural values and make like a cocktail out of Jesus and out of all the things that our culture agrees with already. And when we do that, all that is is a golden calf. That's not a God who leads us. That's not a God who can help you. That's not a God who hears your prayers. That's not a God who can save you because that's a God that you made. And I don't know about you, I don't wanna follow a cow. You know, even a golden cow. I mean, a golden cow is better in some ways than an actual cow, but it's still a cow, right? I don't wanna follow a cow, I wanna follow God. And, and, and let me say this. Jesus is really clear. John 15, verses 18 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I said, what I said to you when I told you a slave is not greater than the master? Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they'd listen to you. Jesus says, hey, look, when you find yourself in this place where you feel like an outsider because of your faith, like the world around you doesn't understand, doesn't get it, misrepresents you, misunderstands you, even finds offense in you, just remember, yeah, I've been there. That's what Jesus is saying. It's exactly how the world received me. And in those moments, as a church, as a culture, as a generation of Christians, who are we gonna be? Are we gonna be the Jesus followers who, who cave to that, that awkward pressure and say, okay, let's just make, what, what about this God? What about, hey, what about this one? This God is, is you know, he's kind of like the old one, but, but he, 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 he matches the, the feelings in the culture of today, right? Or will we be a generation of Jesus followers who say, you know what, I stand by Jesus. And you know what? Yeah, you can clap for him because like there are things about Jesus that our world loves and adores. 
Our world loves and adores Jesus. He's more loving and kind and gracious and forgiving than anyone you have ever met. That's why anytime you you read scripture and you're like, boy, God seems like he's real short-tempered. And if I was God, I would never have done that. No, if you were God, the world would be a much different place. If any of us were God, we 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 would be done with people so fast. God is so patient, he's so kind, he's so loving. And our world looks at the love of Jesus and it's like, yes, he stands for outsiders. Jesus brings those who are on the outside in, that's what he does. And our world looks at that and says, yes, it's beautiful. But then Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father unless they come through me. And our world goes, nope, don't like that. Anyone who wants to be my follower must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Because I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He says, I'm I'm the gate. You have to go through me. And that's just too exclusive. But we have to be a generation of Jesus followers who stand by our Jesus no matter what. And when, when the world adores our Jesus, when the world looks at him and says, yes, I celebrate that. And maybe even the world celebrates us because we stand for those same things Jesus stands for. We go, yeah, thank you, that's great. But if the world looks at us, and finds offense in us because it finds offense in Jesus. What Jesus is saying, what I hope that we are as a church and as a culture, as a group of people who say, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if I'm misunderstood. I'm okay if, if people find offense in the fact that I follow this man because this man is Jesus Christ and he's the king and he will reign forever and I don't care what the world thinks about him. I follow Jesus. And see, it's easy to clap for that here, but out there, we feel that pressure. We've all felt it. People have these ideas about about Jesus, about God, about church. And some of those ideas are well-founded because some people have really taken things in terrible directions. But it's not about saying, "I, I go to church, I'm a Christian even. It's about saying, I follow Jesus Christ. And look at him, I'm not gonna give him, a, he doesn't need a makeover, he doesn't need an update, he doesn't need to be, to be sort of molded with today's cultural leanings, he needs to be celebrated, he needs to be revered, he needs to be worshiped, he needs to be put on a pedestal and for the world to say, look at him, he is the answer, he is the one we need and I stand by him, all of it, all of it. I'm proud of who he is. That's what the world needs Jesus followers to do, not make golden calves. So on like a macro level, I, I've been thinking about this story for months just going, man, I hope we're different. I hope this generation's different. I hope we're ones who go, yeah, I'm okay if you don't get my God, but man, he's amazing. He's crazy about you. He can do anything, by the way. He's powerful. On a personal level, this is where it gets really important. I want us to spend a few minutes as we wrap up this morning just in, in a short time of prayer. Church, we say, yeah, I'm, I'm recognized that my God is not always gonna mesh with the culture I'm part of, but I, I'm gonna take a stand and I, I, I will stand by Jesus. But personally, there's this really powerful mindset shift. And this is my, my hope and my prayer for today. And by the way, this is for me. Everybody is, is for anybody who's here, anybody who's watching. What if instead of me trying to mold God into the God I would prefer him to be? Because like, let's just be honest for a second. Anyone prefer God to be a little bit different in some way, shape, or form? If you had your choice, you're like, hey, God, no one, am I just me? Okay, wow, all right. Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but they're all lying. Uh, like no one wishes God was a little faster in answering his prayers? No? Okay, good. 
What if instead of me trying so hard to mold God into my image, I actually did what I was created to do, which is to be molded into the image of my God? That's what scripture actually says is our purpose. To be made in the image of God, to reflect him. And the only way that happens is is we give him control and he molds us. That's like earlier this morning, this is so cool. We kicked off with a song called Zeal. And, uh, and I do say this from time to time, I promise it's true. I hadn't really looked at the set list. And I, I called Matt late on Friday night and I was like, hey, here's what I'm talking about. I honestly didn't know what I was gonna talk about on Monday. We just got done with that long series and I was kind of like mentally checked out for a few days and I'm like, okay, right, now, now what? God, what do you want me to talk about? And, and I'm reading through the lyrics and you know, it says, we sang this together unless you came late. I know none of you ever get here after the first song, but it was, uh, was a joke. Man, sometimes I say things, they sound so demeaning. I'm sorry. Lord, mold me and change me into a different person because clearly you need to. I really, I'm just being facetious. I'm just joking. Um, we sang every beat is yours. We're talking about our hearts. Every beat is yours. You can have it take over like only you can. All I'm reaching for, you and nothing more, take over like only you can. That is a prayer of surrender. That is a prayer where you say to God, God, here I am, I'm yours. You mold me, you shape me, you make me. I'm not going to to try to make you into the image I want you to be. I'm not gonna try to mold you, God, into a God that, that I don't have to feel awkward about in certain circumstances. No, instead, God, I'm going to present myself to you and I'm just going to say, God, here I am. Mold me. Make me into who you want me to be. I belong to you. I surrender to you. I give everything to you. And we're told in in scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse two, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't don't conform to the world. That's what was happening with the golden calf. They're just becoming more like the world they're part of, but rather be transformed. How does that happen? Who does the transforming? It's the Lord, It's, it's the spirit in us as we surrender, as we have a a state in our heart of just total surrender to God to say, you know what, God, change me. I'm I'm a blank canvas for you. What do you want to do? And I'll do it. It's like David prayed in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart. O God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Make me the way you want me to be. The prophet Isaiah said, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. There's always gonna be a temptation to shape God into some version of a golden calf. That's gonna be persistent. And you know what? I I look at my children and I don't know what their culture is gonna be like 50 years from now, but likely it will be very different than the one we're in. And there'll be certain things about about God that that culture will be all about, but there'll be other things about God that that culture will not like. And I probably can't even predict what those things will be. But it's inevitable because God is always countercultural. There will always be that temptation to make God into something he's not. But if we as people on a personal level can just be people who bow down before him, 
recognizing who he is, how good he is, the power he has, who become people who literally bow down before God and just say, I am clay in your hands. What do you want to do? We're going to pray for a few minutes as we, as we wrap up. Years ago, I, I had a, a huge shift in prayer. I was actually spending some time praying and uh, and I was doing what I always do in prayer, mostly, which is tell God what I think you should do. Um, anybody else like that? You're like, God, I, I have a list. I have many suggestions. Have you thought about this, God? How about you make Bitcoin go up by a whole bunch? That'd be great. No? Okay. Sorry. Like, I, I give God all kinds of tips. I didn't take them that often, but I give him a lot of tips. So this one day I was actually praying and I was specifically praying like, God, I, I need you to do this. And, and then there's this thing going on in, in my, my marriage and there's this going on at the church and with my kid, I just need you to do this. And I have this list of things I want God to do. And, and I felt God like gently, lovingly, but also like, yes, sir. It's like he put his hand on my mouth and said, stop. And I heard so clearly, Justin, you spend so much time trying to get me involved with what you are doing. And instead, you should try to get involved with what I'm doing. And there was this major shift and it was like, yeah, and all the prayer requests I had and all the, the frustrations, I'm like, okay, let's just drop that. And instead of saying, God, here's the list, here's all the things that I need you to do. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You can tell God whatever you want. He loves to listen to you. So you should pray a lot because he loves to listen. But instead of that, I stopped and I just said, Lord, you want to do. And that started to happen with our church. Instead of praying, God, do all these things at his hands, I started praying, God, what do you want his hands to be? And I'm telling you guys, that is where transformation happens. That is where life gets to a place of peace that you, you can't experience anywhere else is when you stop trying to make God do the things that you think God should do. And you just say, I'm the clay. I'm not going to shape you. You shape me. I'm not going to try so hard to get you to do my stuff. I want to do your stuff. So show me what it is, Lord, and I surrender and I give it to you. And so I want to invite you for a few moments. Those of you in the room, those of you watching from home, I want to invite you to pray a prayer of, of surrender to God. To bow your head and get on your knees if you want to. Come forward and bow right here if you want to. It's however, you want to however you want to do it, you just surrender and say, Lord, I am the clay. Make me. I will not try to make you into some version of a golden calf, but you make me, God, into whatever version of me you want me to be. That is a powerful prayer. It is a dangerous prayer. It takes guts to pray it, but it's powerful. So let's do that. Let's pray.